Well, take your Bibles and locate 1 Peter chapter 2, would you? 1 Peter chapter 2. As we get ready to look into this text today, I want you to be aware of some things that the prayer we prayed was intentional and on purpose because we're going to be seeing some very sobering truth this morning. That same truth that is sobering, that will serve as a warning to some, will also be a, an encouraging reality to others. And so there's going to be uh, probably two emotions in the room at all times this morning. Some will have a heart that's just pumping with gratitude and, and um, rejoicing, and others are probably going to have a sense of nervousness. So I'm ready to embark on this journey if you are. Um, and here are some things that I think you need to just begin to process and know. Here's some of that hard reality, sobering warning, and yet comforting truth. It centers around the person and work of Jesus. Hear this, church, that the truth about who Jesus is and what he's done, the truth about Jesus, we will be either changed by it or crushed by it. It will either transform us or it will trip us. Jesus is either our Savior or our judge. He is either our cornerstone or he is a stumbling stone. I want to show you how those realities are true from 1 Peter 2, verses 4 through 8. Your Bibles are there, right? Have your journals handy as well. We'll read the entire text, and Lord willing, we'll go to our lab and explore this text together and see how these two realities exist for every single person on the planet. Here's 1 Peter 2, 4 through 8. The Bible says this to us, As you come to him, he's speaking there of the Lord, refers back to verse 3, those that have tasted that the Lord is good, they've come to him in salvation. This is somewhat of a repetitious phrase. But Peter again says, as you come to him. Now he describes him, he describes this Lord, uh, Jesus Christ. He says, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. You yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. I'll push pause there and say that verse 6 is a quotation from Isaiah 28. Verse 7 is a quotation from Psalm 118. Verse 8 is a quotation from Isaiah 8. I'll show you why that matters as we dig into the text. Just keep that in mind. Peter here is uh, in a very proficient, prolific manner using the Old Testament to show that Jesus Christ truly is the Son of God, the cornerstone, the the one who fulfills everything God has said. 
And he says to some, he's the cornerstone. To others, he's a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. And then he closes out by saying this in verse 8. They stumble because they disobey the word. Notice the word, word there. They're uh, mentioned here three times. He mentions the Old Testament, quotes it as the word. The word's been the point of conversation since the end of chapter 1. So Peter here is saying, this is the word that brings life. It's the word that we crave, we long for. It's the word that that births us into God's family, but it's also that which people disobey to their demise. And then he says, as they were destined to do. Do you feel the, the ambiance of the text already that there is an initial opening that talks about what Jesus is doing as our cornerstone and how it's beautiful and, and encouraging because it means that we'll not be put to shame and yet he turns right around and says, by the way, for those who don't believe, there's a destiny that awaits them if they continue to disbelieve and stumble. I mean, you kind of feel Peter's two handfuls of uh, emotion here, don't you? Let's dive in a bit and see if we can understand more about what he's saying to us and bring some application to it. Um, notice, I'll just walk you through this uh, verbally. Have your pen handy. Have your uh, journal ready to go. Notice that in verse 4, he, he makes this statement that, as you are coming to him. Do you see that? Underline that phrase. Underline the next phrase, which says, you yourselves are being built up. These are the two main phrases in this five-verse section, okay? As you come to him, and then you yourselves are being built up. Those are the two main phrases. They're not imperatives. There's no command here. And I admit to you that sometimes participle phrases can function like an imperative. In this case, they're not. They are again, like Peter has done several times in this chapter already, he's simply giving us a statement about what is. You are coming to Christ. He's the, uh, you know, the Word made flesh. Uh, as you come to Him, then you yourselves are being built up. So something that Jesus does to those who come to Him. Both of these are in a passive um, sense, and so it's not something we're doing it's what Jesus does to those who come to him. Now, notice how Peter describes this in a, in a more explicit manner. He says that we are coming to him, speaking of Jesus, the Lord, and he calls him here a living stone. Uh, a living stone refers to the fact that Christ is the headstone. He's the cornerstone, but he's also a living one. It refers to his resurrection. So he's alive. He's powerful. Remember, the, the word was called this as well earlier as one that, <clears throat> as the word that forever remains, it's living. And so he's saying here that Jesus is alive, and though he is rejected by men, he is in God's sight chosen and precious. The words there speak to intentionality, ordination, uh, value, and worth. And so God's Son is in God's sight exclusive. He's God's only one of a kind, the only begotten Son. He's the living, capital S, stone, and under him and in line with him, those who come to him, look at the next phrase, are being built up. So Jesus does this for his people. Jesus does this for his church. He builds them up. Aren't you glad that Jesus is doing this for those of you who are in Christ? Aren't you thankful that Jesus owns this responsibility to build his church, to structure it, to speak into it and strengthen it? In fact, I would write down three words in regards to this first verse, which is verse six. 
Write down the word foundation. It's Jesus. It's the pronoun him in verse 4. It's the last two words of Jesus Christ in verse 5. So as you come to him, as you come to Jesus Christ, he's our foundation. He's doing two things. He is taking care of our formation. Do you see that? He's uh, building us up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. I love the fact here that Peter clearly says that the church is a spiritual house. That's the dwelling place of God now. It is not a physical temple as was true in the Old Testament or in the wilderness with the tabernacle. Church, hear this. Now the dwelling place of God is his people. He resides in us and among us through the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 6 bears this out. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So the dwelling place, this spiritual house, it's not a physical place, it's a spiritual house. We are God's temple. We are God's people. We're his church. And Jesus Christ is forming us into that. He's taking each of you who belong to him. You're a living stone, little s, we'll call it. He here pluralizes it. There are many living stones, but they're all in line with the living stone. So Jesus sets the direction. He's the one handling the formation. He's also the one instructing us on how we're to function. Look what he says here. That the spiritual house, these living stones that are being built up, they're being formed and structured. They're to be a holy priesthood. And I love that because in the Old Testament, in the actual place, the temple, there was only a few that could be priests. But in God's dwelling place, the, the church, the house, the spiritual temple, guess what? We're all priests. We come to God through Jesus. He's our high priest. Man, this is such a beautiful thing, the priesthood of the believer. And what are we to do in this spiritual temple? We're to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. So first of all, notice this is a very vertical function. So church, hear this. If you think the church's function is first and foremost, strictly or primarily horizontal, uh, as plot as that can be, you're wrong. The church's function is not primarily first and foremost horizontal. It is first and foremost vertical to God. Now watch this. Does that have horizontal impact are its effects seen and felt? A hundred percent, yes. Amen, church? But often we try to seek impact on a horizontal level. We try to watch our actions affect others this way without a vertical focus. And that's a powerless effort. It's trying to run your car without the proper fuel in the tank. And here, Peter clearly says, we are God's house, his family, his dwelling place, and we're to offer God spiritual sacrifices through Jesus. So it's a vertical focus. And maybe you're wondering, like, what are these spiritual sacrifices? That's a good question. Peter here does not delineate what those are. I can give you a couple in the scriptures. There may be more. Can I get to tell you a couple that are explicit in the scriptures? Paul said in Romans that we're to offer our, our bodies as a living sacrifice. So, so watch this, church. One of the ways that we worship the Lord as a church family, one of the ways that we function as Jesus forms us is by making sure that we reject autonomy of our bodies, that we have the right to call the shots and do what we want with our bodies. Actually, we don't. Our bodies belong to God. So sexually, um, just in other ways, we... we 
your, your body belongs to God. I'll just repeat myself. And you know, that's, a, that's a stark posture in a world that thrives on and claims autonomy. But we do not own ourselves. Furthermore, we don't own the decision about how we use our bodies for the mission, so to speak. There's a mission of God in play, has been in play. He's redeeming people from every nation, language, tribe, and tongue. He's now purchased a people to himself. And as we submit to the authority of Christ and reject our own personal autonomy, then we give our bodies to his mission. We give our lives to his service. So just understand, one of the things that we offer as a spiritual sacrifice is our body. We physically serve the Lord. Another thing we offer is the praise of our lips. I think the writer of Hebrews calls this the fruit of our lips. So when you are praising God, whether it's in musical fashion or maybe it's in a verbal way, in a conversation, but when you praise the Lord, you're offering a spiritual sacrifice. That's just two things that I can think of that the church, both individually and collectively, is to do. That's, that's some of its function. And Jesus Christ is structuring us and aligning us so that that occurs. So the foundation handles our formation and function. It all points to and lines up with Jesus Christ. He is the focus of every single church. And maybe I should say he should be the focus of every single church. No wonder he is called the head of the church. So this is what Peter here is really clearly stating in verses 4 and 5. And I just want to encourage you again, just see the connection. There's a living stone who's forming and it's the foundation for all the living stones. And, and I think it's very ironic that Peter would use the word stone. You know, Peter's name means rock. It's the word petros. Uh, it means uh, stone. And I wonder if Peter didn't use this not only because of the Old Testament's use, but maybe in his mind he's thinking, yeah, my name means rock, but I'll know. He's thinking, I know I can't do what I do without the rock. So Peter here is saying to us, there's a lot of living stones, but we all must be in alignment with the living stone. And Jesus is assuring that that will happen. Now what happens and what occurs in the next set of verses is that we find modifiers for this first two verses, okay? So verses four and five, they lay, for out, lay out for us just a, a reality that's true about the church. That we come to him and then we are being built up into God's spiritual house. That's kind of the point of this text. Two realities, two indicatives that Jesus is, is doing. Verse six begins with four. So it's a modifying verse. You ought to circle the word four, maybe draw an arrow back to verses uh, excuse me, verse 6 begins with 4. Draw arrow back to verses 4 and 5. And verse 7 begins with so. These are transition modifying words. Let me show you how they modify verses 4 and 5. And again, we're going to experience two emotions. One that causes us to rejoice and be glad and thankful and one that will be very sobering and probably cause some tension and nervousness. He says, first of all, in verse 6, for it stands in Scripture here, Peter brings in the Word, by the way, the Old Testament, to make sure that we understand that, that Christ, as the cornerstone, it has always been God's intention. This has been God's plan. This is from Isaiah 28. And here God is promising to bring to the forefront the Messiah. He would be chosen and precious. He'd be the 
the cornerstone. He'd be the exclusive one to fulfill all of God's promises. And he says here that whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Aren't you glad for that? He's stating in the negative what he also states in verse 7 in the positive. Look at verse 7. The honor is for you who believe. So do you catch the difference? For those who believe, you will not be put to shame. You will experience honor. Why? Because Christ is the fulfillment of everything God has promised. He's the cornerstone. He's the living stone. Everything lines up with him. So if you line your life up with Jesus Christ, you will not be put to shame. You will receive honor. Now, what's going on with those words? What's Peter's thinking? First of all, the idea of not being put to shame because you believe. And by the way, the word believe is used twice here. If you're ever wondering what the core action is for the followers of Jesus, it's to believe who Jesus is and what he's done. This is why Paul would say several times to those who were lost and he was witnessing to, and they'd say, what must I do to be saved? He would say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the core, first, simplest response of anyone outside of God's family. Believe who Jesus is and what he's done. So Peter here says, if you've believed in Jesus, you'll not be put to shame and you will have honor. What's going on with that? The idea of not being put to shame would be synonymous with not experiencing disgrace or disappointment. Not being uh, humiliated because you thought something was going to happen that never happened. In other words, and I think the word disappointed is a very good word. In other words, you're putting your faith in Jesus and what he's done. And so you're, you're holding on to that. You're enduring well in the moment because at the end, you're banking on that this is a real deal. Peter here says to those who are believing, you will not be disappointed. Amen. You will not be put to shame. You're not going to find out that you've been involved in some eternal bait and switch. That's not happening. This is an evidential, historical fact. Jesus lived, died, and rose again as God's son. He has become the cornerstone. And so if you've put your faith in him, watch this. If you've lined up your life with him, if you've let him set every direction, formation, and function, when the end comes, you will not experience disappointment. You'll not be disgraced or humiliated. You won't find yourself saying, Oh, I thought, no, it'll be far greater than anything you could ever ask or think or imagine. So he states in the negative first, you'll not be put to shame. Instead, there is honor for you. Now watch this. Let me show you an intriguing use of the word honor here. And I want to be careful how I approach this because I don't want to overstate it, but I, neither do I want to understate it. And therein lies the job of every preacher you don't ever want to overstate or understate, and sometimes it's hard to not walk that tightrope, right? This is a delicious word because it has some financial implications. It's used several times in the Bible, and several times it, it refers to like a, a financial type of situation. And so when I read Peter saying that there is honor for those who believe and knowing the history of the word, I tend to think, here's what's happening, and I'm going to say this to you, and I mean it reverently and appropriately, but I want you to hear this. Peter's saying, guess what? There's a payoff coming. But in Peter's mind, and in the sense of this text and throughout the New Testament, it is a future payoff. The word also implies worth, value. Same word here used to describe how 
adults should treat their parents. We honor our parents. So there is a financial obligation to parents as they grow older, but there's also a sense of worth and value we place upon them. Are you with me? He's saying, for those who believe, it's the same idea that that you're not gonna be disappointed, you won't be humiliated, there's no bait and switch. It will pay off. There's honor and worth and value to believing. But it may not always show up in the moment. And boy, that's First Peter, isn't it? He's talking about hostility, difficulty, suffering, persecution. And Peter's point is throughout the book, and we'll see this especially beginning in chapter two, about verse 13 or so. Peter's point is, in the middle of all of that, do not give up. And here he says, because it will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Life's trials will seem so small when we see him. You see, this is where the prosperity preachers get it wrong. They think that the gospel brings material possessions now. Peter says it brings spiritual position now and spiritual possessions later. Your current reality actually may be very difficult in the here and now, but I can assure you in the words of Peter inspired by the Holy Spirit, there is honor to believing and you will not be disappointed. So are you, are you as a believer already feeling the sense of gratitude and rejoicing and excitement welling up in your heart? I am. Like, you, you know, your lungs are gathering more breath to sing and praise. Like your hands are wanting to be raised. You're thinking, wow, all that God does for those who believe, there's no disappointment, no humiliation, no bait and switch, no disgrace, but honor. Like there's a payoff coming. And so we... We hold on, we endure, we persevere. And yet, he moves right to this next phrase. Look at verse seven. For those who do not believe, and he's going to now explain their end game through the use of a couple of Old Testament scriptures and then this final phrase. He says, they're in for a surprise. That's my own words there, okay? But notice how he uses this phrase from Psalm 118 and Isaiah 8 to describe the surprise they're, they're in for. The stone the builders rejected, it's become the cornerstone. He says in verse 8 that it was a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. The word offense there is scandal. And I do think Peter has in mind here initially the Jewish religious leaders who crucified Christ and who for three years followed and chased Christ to try to kill him and couldn't until the appointed time. Peter was with him during these times. He saw this occurring. He saw them reject Jesus, make his life a scandal. Like, how can anything good come from Nazareth? Or your mother, she wasn't even married. I mean, several times you find in the story of Jesus, the leaders scandalizing Christ, taking offense at who he was and what he claimed to be. They would trip over him. They stumbled over him. They didn't align their life to Christ. They they saw him and he became a stumbling block to them, a a point of offense and a, a reason to create a scandal, so to speak. 
And this is what Peter says is happening to those who are rejecting Christ. He's thinking, yes, of those religious leaders initially, but I think he's also thinking of current people. This is probably 20-ish, 30 years past the crucifixion when he's writing this to these dispersed chosen sojourners. And he's probably thinking of people that they know who are still rejecting Christ. Perhaps saying, you follow that man? You believe him? You're trusting him? So Peter here has both in mind, I believe, and he's saying that there are people who will not receive honor, but instead will be humiliated, and they'll actually not get what they think they're going to get. So the disappointment's actually with those who don't believe. You see, they rejected him thinking, you're not who you say you are. We resist you. But it turns out he's actually the, the cornerstone. He's the head of the corner. He's the one that aligns everything within God's family. He's the only one, the son of God. You rejected God himself. What you thought you were tripping over is now going to turn, over, turn and crush you. What you thought you could just uh, resist is actually going to turn and be your judge. And you say, Todd, why are you using such extreme language here? Why are you saying that this stone that they rejected is going to turn around and, and crush them? Because that's exactly how Jesus said it. And so here's where the tension in the room could rise. Here's where the nervousness could creep in. When Jesus was instructing his disciples and some of the crowds about how the kingdom of God works, this is Matthew 21. You can read about verses 42-ish in there. You'll see this. He explained to them that the scripture said this about himself. So Jesus is talking, he says, here's what the scriptures say about me. And I'll read to you from Matthew 21. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. So he's admitting what you're looking at is the cornerstone of God's work. I am the Messiah. I'm God in the flesh in front of you. And some of you will believe, but others of you will trip over me. I'll be a stumbling block to some of you. And then he says this to his disciples. I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. Let me back that up. He's speaking here to religious leaders. His disciples are hearing this, they're understanding, but it's the leaders who are hearing Jesus say to them, I'm gonna take the kingdom from you and give it to those who are producing fruits. In other words, it will no longer be stewarded only by the Jewish nation. It will no longer be an ethnic situation. Instead, those who respond to the gospel from every nation, language, tribe, and tongue will be part of this family. This is God's house. I am the cornerstone of it. Now watch what he says next. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. I see that as a statement that Christ, when you fall on him, when you run to him, he will dismantle all of your systems of thought and religious effort and you'll see that he's the only one able to bring you to God. It's a good statement in kind of an odd way to say it. But the stone will be what actually saves you and rescues you. But what's the next phrase? And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. So if you don't like the way this is worded, take it up with Jesus. Because the truth about who he is, it will either change you or it will crush you. He will be your savior 
or he will be your judge. He will be your cornerstone or he will be your crushing stone. And Peter here says, for those who do not believe but stumble, they disobey the word. He says, lastly, this is what they were destined to do. Now, again, I think he has in mind not only the religious Jewish leaders who by God's ordination were part of the plan to make sure that Christ was crucified. But I do think he has in mind current believers, excuse me, current unbelievers who were known by these believers who were mocking and creating hostility and suffering for the believers with things like, I can't believe you follow that man. He was crucified. He never brought any kind of freedom. He didn't release us from the Romans. What good did he do? And he says here that their stumbling and disobedience was destined for them. Now, that's a good phrase and a hard phrase. Would you agree? You can go ahead and shake your head. It's a hard one for all of us. I'm not going to skip over it. Here's what's happening. I believe this phrase is pointing to the ordination of God in all things, even in things pertaining to those who don't believe in God. In other words, we say this around here a lot, that there are no coincidences with God. That's what Peter's saying. That even when unbelievers stumble and disobey, that was under the ordination and control of God. Now, here's what the text does not say. Please, don't don't click off. Stay with me. The text does not say that that is a forever permanent condition. It doesn't say they're going to continue to stumble and disobey. Both these verbs are present tense. You could read this verse by this, like this. They are stumbling because they are disobeying the word. This is what they were destined to do. So, so there is a sense in which Peter is saying that those who have yet to believe, they're acting the way they're acting because God has ordained that to happen. If you need proof of this, you should read Acts chapter 9. It's the conversion of a man named Saul who later was named Paul. And you can't read Acts 9 and think, man, I just really wish that God would have saved Saul earlier. Like you can think that humanly, but you can't think that theologically. Everything about Saul's life was ordained by God to happen just the way and in just the time it occurred. And when Saul came to Christ on the Damascus road through that incredible, and I'll use the word human interruption, When God intervened in Saul's life and brought him to faith and humbled him, he became a a powerful witness. That was exactly in God's time. I would say to you boldly and clearly, every bit of Saul's life was under the ordination of God. So there was a time in which he was stumbling and disobeying the word. And then there was a time when God's grace came to him and he no longer stumbled and disobeyed, but he saw Jesus and the truth about Christ and Christ became not his crushing stone, but his cornerstone. And I think sometimes we read this and we think, oh, there's just some fatalism going on in in Christian life. And and I guess you just, you know, whatever it is is gonna be. No, this just speaks of the ordination of God over the lives of all people saved or lost. It doesn't say that they'll forever stumble and disobey, nor does it promise that they will be saved. It's simply saying 
that in their current situation of stumbling and disobeying, God's in control of that. I find that very comforting. I hope you do as well. That God is actively, sovereignly in control. After all, do you really want a part-time God? Do you want a God like, I think I've got most things handled. Do you want like half-time sovereignty? Not on your life. We believe and hold to this fact that God is fully, sovereignly, authoritatively in control of all things. And Peter here is saying, yes, this is what the ordination of God has deemed best, that there are those who currently stumble and disobey. But watch this. They don't have to continue to stumble and disobey, which is why we preach the gospel. Remember back in the end of chapter 1? He says, this is the gospel that was preached to you. There was a point in time where many of these believers were stumbling and disobeying. They were rejecting Christ. But they heard the gospel. The word which saved them, birthed new life in them, caused them to grow. So Peter here says, hey, quit disobeying the word. And so it behooves us. It is important that we realize the necessity of living a life of getting the word to people of being uh, an ambassador, of making sure we share the news with people that Jesus Christ, you can come to him. You can experience new birth and he will form you into his house. He'll help you function in a way that gives your life to the mission of God. I mean, this is the beautiful text, even though it contains two very deep emotions, one of great rejoicing and one of a great warning. Now, while I'm on this idea of seeing that those who stumble and disobey are not permanently there if they receive Christ and and open their hearts to God's grace and God saves them, I want to encourage you to live your life to that end, okay? Lean the ladder of your life against the wall of God's mission to see the gospel get to those who currently are stumbling because they're disobeying. They don't see Christ as the cornerstone. They don't see Jesus for who he is and what he's done. But God could open their eyes when the message of Christ gets to them. So to help with that, just the one thing I want to give you today. As you leave, there's a couple of things on the back I want to make sure you take. There's a book. It's a beautifully put together book from the International Mission Board. It talks about our partnership with them, along with thousands of other churches as well. But we were given about 400 copies. There's a few left after the first service. Just one per family. It will enlarge your heart for what God is doing around the globe. So take a copy of the book, would you? And it's just one of the partners we support, the International Mission Board. Take it, uh, read it, look at the pictures. A lot of pictures, so a lot of us are good with that, right? And you'll just, you'll, your heart will be stirred to what God is doing globally to people who are currently stumbling and disobeying but don't have to keep stumbling and disobeying as the gospel reaches them. Another pamphlet, so to speak, back there is one on the North American Mission Board. You can pick that up as well and read more about the efforts within Canada, Mexico, uh, United States to get the gospel to, uh, to people. So just be aware of that. I just kept thinking about how important it is for us to realize that there isn't a fatalism going on in this text. There's really a call to, to seeing what Christ will do for those who come to him. So those that aren't coming to him, but they're stumbling and disobeying, 
Let's get the gospel to them so that they see Christ as the cornerstone and trust him and believe in him. So how about a take-home picture? Can we do that today? Instead of a take-home truth or a take-home warning or a take-home principle, how about a take-home picture? Here's a cornerstone. And I realize that in our day and age, most of these are more symbolic and memorial. We have other tools we use to make sure buildings are aligned and perfectly joined. But in that day and age, it would be a, a rock, a stone of at least this size, if not more, that would, they would set in a corner to make sure the rest of the building lined up perfectly. If you're a believer, you're seeing this, you're like thankful for Jesus, aren't you? He's making sure the rest of the building lines up perfectly. Hallelujah. As you've come to him, he's building you up. He's forming you, and he's making sure you know how to function. He's our foundation. But imagine if that single cornerstone were to fall on you. I couldn't lift it. I'd be crushed by it, and you would too. And that's probably a small picture of a cornerstone. You see, you either live in line with it or you die underneath it. And I'm pastorally responsible to make sure you know there is no middle ground. You are either with him or you're against him. Those two are the words of Jesus. And this morning, you are so thankful that you are in line with Jesus, that you're living your life directed by the cornerstone Christ. I'm glad your heart is rejoicing that you're being formed by Jesus and it will be worth it. There is a payoff. It is of great worth and value to believe. Keep it up. But if this morning, you know that you have not lined your life up with Christ, you don't believe that he is the son of God who came and lived and died and in his death and resurrection has become the only way to God. He's the gate. He's the door. He's the shepherd. All those analogies, that's Jesus. He's the only way to God. You're saying, well, if I don't believe that, then that I'm in for a great awakening one day when that very truth crushes me and Jesus judges me. That's true, you're right. Maybe you're wondering, what do I do then, Todd? I'm really glad you asked that question. And the answer is mentioned twice in this text. Believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he died for you and rose again. God will save you the moment you believe. And you'll move from pending humiliation in hell to pending honor in heaven. You'll move from being disappointed because it didn't end like you thought it was going to to never being disappointed to great honor and worth and value in believing that will that will pay off when Jesus comes, you'll move to that from like a lot of short-term gain in the here and now, but eternal 
long-term pain. And if this morning you're in this room and you no longer wish to be under the crushing stone, but you wish to align your life with the cornerstone, here's what that kind of prayer would sound like. Something like this. Dear God, I repent of thinking that I can find my way to you, that I can work my way to you, I can earn my way to you. God, I repent of thinking that I can set my own way to you. And instead, in this moment, I believe that Jesus Christ is your son who lived, died, and was raised from the dead for the forgiveness of my sins. And I trust Jesus alone to save me. And I line my life up with Jesus. And at that moment, God will save you. And you will no longer be under the crushing stone of Jesus. You'll be in line with the cornerstone, Jesus. And your heart will move from nervous tension and dread and worry to incredible joy and gratefulness. Amen? Because you will now know you will never be put to shame. Praise God. We hope you enjoyed today's message. For more messages, visit firstfamily.church forward slash sermons or subscribe to our podcast feed. Thanks for listening.